This is March 8th, 2020, um, and I'm going to um, talk this morning about the coronavirus. Uh, I don't want to be the only one in uh, the world not talking about this, uh, but seriously, uh, many, many people, this is on the minds of many, many people, um, and uh, there are some things that I think are very useful. Uh, someone gave me an article from Scientific American, a recent article, about uh, things we can do not just to protect ourselves, but for the greater good, for our, our neighbors and colleagues. Uh, and I really, I really focused on this article among the many that I've read recently. Uh, because of its emphasis on it's kind of a Mahayana uh, take on this. Um, so I'll just dive into that. This is uh, by a, <clears throat> a, um, a whew, Zeynep Tufeki. Uh, I, I won't even try to spell it. It's an associate prof she, she, I think, she is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina School of Information and Library Science and a regular contributor to the New York Times. Uh, she wrote a book, Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. <clears throat> so I'll, in, last name Tufeki, I guess. So uh, <clears throat> she starts off, uh, she says, as the new human coronavirus spreads around the world, uh, individuals and families should prepare. But are we preparing, she asks, We're to be ready. But ready means what, how? And then she says, it seems to me that some people may be holding back from preparing because of their understandable dislike of associating such preparation with doomsday or prepper subcultures. Uh, another possibility is that people may have learned that for many people the disease is mild. It's true, which is certainly true, but they don't think it's a big risk to them, to them themselves. And also, many doomsday scenarios advise extensive preparation for increasingly outlandish scenarios. And this may seem daunting and pointless, and it is, she says. Others may not feel like contributing to a panic or appearing to be selfish. I just uh, have to insert that just, just the other day, I was talking to a couple, not, not in the Sangha, who said uh, they're just going to go about their business as they always have um, because um, it's what's the point in panicking? And uh, I pushed back on that. I said, well, <laughs> you don't have to panic to be prepared to consider the possible uh, uh, scenarios that could happen, uh, especially once... Uh, someone locally is is diagnosed with the coronavirus, COVID-19. Um, 
but so so first she she here she mentions these different reasons why people may be dismissing it um, and not seeing any real need to prepare and and then she begins here forget all that preparing for the almost inevitable global spread of this virus now dubbed COVID-19 is one of the most pro-social altruistic things you can do in response to potential disruptions of this kind. We should prepare not because we may feel personally at risk, but so that we can help lessen the risk for everyone. We should prepare not because we are facing a doomsday scenario out of our control, but because we can alter every aspect of this risk we face as a society. Again, the the emphasis as we have in Mahayana Buddhism, Zen is a school of Mahayana Buddhism uh, that, that emphasizes um, doing this work uh, for the greater good, for others, to help others. She continues, that's right, you should prepare because your neighbors need you to prepare, especially your elderly neighbors, your neighbors who work at hospitals, your neighbors with chronic illnesses, and your neighbors who may not have the means or the time to prepare because of a lack of resources or time. Prepper and survivalist subcultures are often associated with doomsday scenarios and extreme steps. People stocking and hoarding supplies, building bunkers and preparing to go off the grid so that they may survive some untold catastrophe, brandishing weapons to guard their compound while their less prepared neighbors perish. All this appears both extreme and selfish, and to be honest, a little nutty. Just check the title of a TV series devoted to the subculture, Doomsday Preppers, implying, well, a doomsday and the few prepared individuals surviving in a war of all against all world. In in contrast, she says, the real crisis scenarios we're likely to encounter require cooperation and, crucially, flattening the curve of the crisis, exactly so the more vulnerable can fare better, so that our infrastructure will be less stressed at any one time. Then she asks, what does the flattening the curve mean for the current COVID-19 threat. Epidemiologists often talk about two important numbers. Uh, she, she throws out a couple of ac- acronyms, but I'll just say the two, the two measures, how infectious a disease might be and the number of people who die as a result of being infected. Some diseases are deadlier than others, But here's the thing, she says, such epidemiological numbers are not fixed or immutable. They are not constants that exist independent of our actions. In that that sense, it's, it's, uh, I I just came, this just came to my mind at this moment. It's like karma. 
karma is not fixed. It's not a fate we have to accept. Karma is a constantly uh, changing dynamic. It's based a lot on what we're doing, uh, how we're responding in any situation. So such epidemiological numbers are not fixed or immutable. Um, yeah, they're not fixed because they're changing. Every, every 48 hours we get new data on these things and uh, Everyone acknowledges that there are many, many people who may uh, be carrying the virus who don't know it. And so how can you come up with reliable statistics at any one time as far as these two things, how infectious and how many die? Uh, just uh, maybe a week ago, uh, they were saying, uh, the CDC was saying that uh, the lethality rate of this coronavirus is about 20 times the lethality rate of uh, common influenza that happens every winter. Uh, but now, uh, as the data keep coming in, they've reduced that a little bit. Now they're talking about uh, like 15 times as lethal as the flu. And a lot of that, by the way, is probably most of you know, probably most of you know most of this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm reading it just because of the the angle this writer has uh, adopted of focusing on others. Uh, <clears throat> um, uh, these numbers are not fixed or immutable. They are not constants that exist independent of our actions. Where they land depends on the characteristics of the pathogen, but also our response. By preparing now, we can alter both of those key numbers and save many lives. Uh, let me also just say that I think we said this in a Saga email that yesterday a few of us met <clears throat> to discuss um, what whatever we could think of that might help us get better prepared and to develop uh, a different different. Um, courses of action to adopt depending on how things uh, change in the coming weeks or months. Um, so I suppose we might um, may or may not want to send out more details about all that, but rest assured we're, we're all over this, uh, looking at uh, the implications of uh, quarantining uh, resident staff and how that would work and uh, Sashin, when to pull the plug on Sashin if necessary uh, or what to do about all that. And also here in the Zendo ha uh, sittings uh, that we might very well have to uh, uh, cancel sittings for, for a period of uh, a week or two uh, just to um, control potential spread. She goes on, the infectiousness of a virus, for example, depends on how much we encounter one another and how well we quarantine individuals who are ill, how often we wash our hands, whether those treating the ill have proper protective equipment, how healthy we are to begin with, 
and such factors are all under our control. All this means that if we can slow the transmission of the disease, again, flatten its curve, there will be many lives saved, even if the same number of people eventually get sick, because everyone won't show up at the hospital all at once. That's the advantage. That's why we want to flatten the curve, spread it out. She says, plus, if we can flatten that curve, there is more time to develop a vaccine or find antivirals that help. And then she uh, reminds us that for the elderly, uh, they, they're saying above age of 70, or for people who have other diseases or comorbidities, it's very serious with death rates reaching up to 15%. We all, one of the many details covered yesterday in this meeting was if someone should show uh, worrisome symptoms in Sashin in two weeks, uh, in the Sashin that's happening in two weeks, uh, what to do with them, whether to quarantine them at, at Chapin Mill, uh, or um, have someone drive them in to the city and quarantine them in the, the, the dorm, uh, back here at Arnold Park, and who would do that? We wouldn't want to have an elder, elderly person driving them in. Uh, but kind of maybe rely on some younger bodhisattva who would be <laughs> willing to uh, have a kind of a nasty flu for a week or two. So we're talking about masks, uh, about uh, the the uh, stuff you wash, you 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 rinse you. Uh, what is it called? The the fluid that you hand sanitizer, hand sanitizer that that kind of stuff, which is uh, unavailable now, by the way, <laughs> uh, on commercially. Um, uh, then to continue with her thing here, it's also a great threat to health workers uh, who handle people with a virus every day, with thousands of cases already. This is. Boy, I should give anyone a pause of, of uh, gratitude to healthcare workers who are out there in the front lines and exposing themselves to these things and, and uh, all too often uh, succumbing themselves to this virus in order to help others again. The, uh, the bodhisattva role that they're playing. She continues, there are also enough examples of mild or barely symptomatic COVID-19 cases and a long enough incubation period that this disease will almost certainly not be contained. The word I keep hearing is inevitable. That That is from healthcare professionals that uh, although as of yesterday, we still have no confirmed uh, case of this COVID-19 in the Rochester area, that it's, uh, it, it is inevitable, it's only a matter of time. And that's when uh, we'll um, really get serious about these measures, considering these various measures. Uh, this disease will almost certainly not be contained. She says, we can't expect to reliably detect everyone who's ill and infectious as we could with the SARS 2003 epidemic, where the victims always exhibited high fever 
and thus were easier to identify and isolate. By the way, as far as symptoms, the big ones that came out in our meeting yesterday, the big ones to watch out for is number one, a shortness of breath, and then also uh, fever uh, and uh, cough. <clears throat> All of this means that the only path to flattening the curve for COVID-19, that means sl slowing it down, spreading it out, is community-wide isolation. The more people stay home, the fewer people will catch the disease. The fewer people who catch the disease, the better hospitals can help those who do. Crowding at hospitals doesn't just threaten those with COVID-19. If emergency rooms are overwhelmed, more flu patients too will die because of lack of treatment, for example. And then she continues, community-wide isolation also means that people will depend on that people will depend on deliveries for essentials in in ground zero of Hubei province. That's where uh, Wuhan was, where all this got started. Uh, that's that's what's happening. There, there, but there are so there are only so many delivery workers, and while deliveries are better than people going shopping, it's still a risk to everyone involved. So if fewer people need deliveries. And she's leading up to uh, ways to get your stocks uh, in place of, of uh, food, non-perishable foods, and and other things. If fewer people need deliveries, then fewer people will get sick, and more people who need help, such as the elderly, can still get deliveries as the services will be less overwhelmed. Here's what all this means in practice. Get a flu shot, if you haven't already, and stock up supplies at home so that you can stay home for two or three weeks, going out as little as possible. I took this uh, seriously enough to go out uh, with my wife on Saturday uh, to just buy some, a few cans of, of, uh, of things, uh, beans and other things like that, um, and I uh, got a thermometer, uh, and uh, yeah, toilet paper. The uh, the Wegmans we went to was just swarming with people. <laughs> we asked about where to find a thermometer, and the the pharmacist said, "Well, they just been they're flying off the shelves." So there are those who can hear that and think, "Oh yeah, people are just panicking," and but no, it doesn't mean they're panicking. It means they're taking it seriously and they want to be ready for any scenario or, or just about any scenario. If, if, you're, if you're buying some canned food that you, can, you figure you'll eat anyway, some sooner or later, or toilet paper you're going to use, then uh, why, why wait until it's too late? Possibly too late. If you're in a position of authority, that means figuring out how to help people stay at home by preparing for and allowing for remote work or allowing for future work to make up for missed days and other similar plans. 
and, this, and she then she uses an example people who have a cleaning service um, continue paying the house cleaners uh, it can be reconciled later without pay people will not be able to prepare or to, and stay at home and then she addresses the issue of masks uh, people are trying to stock up on masks. Many places have already run out, giving us a taste of what it means not to flatten the curve. If everyone gets masks all at once, there's just no way to keep up. However, don't worry if you cannot find masks. Those are most important for healthcare workers. Masks are useful for protecting others from your germs, germs and also for making it harder or reminding you not to touch your face. And then hand sanit mentions hand sanitizer. And of course, everybody must know about washing hands all the time. This is the number one. Clinical studies, she says, show amazing results to just washing hands regularly and well, at least 20 seconds. So probably most of you have heard that 20 seconds is about going through the birthday song twice. I came up with an alternative to the birthday song. The, the gata at the end of the Prajnaparamita, uh, do that three times, and that I timed it. It's about 20 seconds, so gate, gate, para, gate. Those of you who have been here uh, for New Year's, well, well, that'll sound especially familiar. Three times running. And then I'm skipping a lot of paragraphs here that I don't think are that. They get into the weeds of details and all, and uh, we don't, you can just Google that. <clears throat> um, but uh, just, she just sums it up. Uh, the practical steps facing households are immediate and important. For the sake of everyone else, prepare to stay home for a few, prepare, not, she's not saying stay home, prepare to have to stay home for a few weeks. You'll reduce your own risks, but most importantly, you will reduce the burden on health care and delivery infrastructure and allow frontline workers to reach and help the most vulnerable. Another article that uh, I d uncovered, uh, this was from the New York Times, is uh, called The Difference Between Worry, Stress, and Anxiety. And uh, I found this useful. Uh, I can sketch it out and comment on it from a Zen perspective. This is um, dated February 26th of this year by Emma Patti, P-A-T-T-E-E, -E, Emma Patti. So I just jotted down some notes and, and where she distinguishes uh, among these three things. So worry, worry is what happens when your brain dwells on negative thoughts or uncertain outcomes or things that could go wrong. So specifically, they can be kind of repetitive, obsessive thoughts about the future. Um, Ruminating is worry. And she says it's, it's worry 
is the cognitive component of anxiety. Just to jump ahead here, um, worry is the mental component, the cognitive component of anxiety. Stress is the physical component, the body, and anxiety is the two of them together, mind and body. Now, with, with regard to worry, this is where Zen practice can make a huge difference. Um, again, negative thoughts, dwelling on uncertain outcomes, things that could go wrong. We don't have to be uh, victims of this, this kind of this kind of thinking if 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 we're not if we learn through practice to not dwell on such thoughts and we can we have some choice they can they can pull at us these things uh, but we can learn to refrain from dwelling in these thoughts she she uh she, she quotes Dr. Laura Marcus as saying that, that worry in small degrees has some functional uh, sense to it. Uh, and, but then she adds, it's only when we get stuck thinking about a problem that worry stops being functional. So that's worry, mental, thoughts, runaway thoughts. Then stress she says, is more of a, of a physiological thing. It's a physiological response connected to an external event. There must be a stressor that is a cause, usually some kind of external circumstance. It's a reaction to environmental changes or forces that exceed the individual's resources. It's a natural uh, response to a threat. So as she gives a couple of examples, uh, when you're racing through traffic to meet a deadline, that's the, that's the threat in this case, is a deadline. Um, I think I'm always under some stress myself on Sunday mornings before Teisho. Uh, have to pull everything together as best as I can with a deadline. And this... She says, "Is this kind of racing through traffic or other such things is uh, acute stress. Chronic stress is when the body stays in this fight or flight mode." She mentions as an antidote to stress, exercise. But then we all could add meditation. If there's one thing that meditation will do for you. Least Zen meditation, probably any decent kind of meditation, is it enables you to handle stress better. So that's worry, and then stress, and then anxiety is, she says, is the culmination to stress and worry. It's the cognitive element of worry plus the physiological response, stress. Anxiety, she says, is what happens when you're dealing with a lot of worry and a lot of stress. It's a response to a false alarm. 
is no real threat in the case of anxiety. So all of this is to say we can definitely reduce our worry and the way we manage stress and our anxiety uh, through a daily practice of sitting. Any of you have, who have faced uh, some serious medical uh, issue, uh, like a, you've had a biopsy and you have to wait for a week or 10 days to hear about it or uh, anything else like that, um, you do, it, it can make such a difference instead of to, to, to be sitting every day or to have had years of sitting every day. Um, there, there, you don't have to be dwelling on, on your fears, things that might happen, un, uncertain outcomes. We can, we, when we learn to, f to find the space between thoughts, that is, when we learn to uh, access the, the realm of no thought, this is a tremendous, tremendous advantage in daily life facing these kinds of things. This is what develops resilience. As I was uh, sitting this morning, uh, I recalled this marvelous old, this from from ancient times, this uh, this analogy of the interdependence of of everything, um, and that's really what we're facing now. We're we're being reminded with this coronavirus as we are with the flu, also more annual flu, we're being reminded of how much everything is interconnected. And um, I, th I wanted to read um, the, what Indra's net is. It's, a, it's, a, it's an analogy of a simile from the YN school. The YN school is it's a, another school of of Buddhism, like Zen, but but a little bit different. It's based on the the uh, the Avatamska Sutra, which in Japanese is called the Kagon Sutra, in Chinese it's called the Huayen School. The, it's called the Flower Garland uh, Sutra. The flower, uh, it is the foundational text for the Flower Garland School, and it teaches or it emphasizes. This is all. Uh, consonant with Zen teaching, it teaches the equality of all things and the dependence of all things on one another. Think of that article from Scientific American, the dependence of all, all of us on one another. Sometimes it's called the teaching of totality since all things participate in a unity and this unity divides itself into the many. So here's the uh, 
Here's what Indra's net is. It's a metaphor used widely in the Yan school of East Asian Buddhism. I'm reading here from uh, diction, some dictionary of Buddhism um, published by... Uh, actually, I'm not sure who published it. It's one of the dictionaries of Buddhism, sorry. Um, to describe the multivalent web of interconnections in which all beings are enmeshed. Uh, and here's the idea. Above the palace of Indra, the king of the gods, is spread an infinitely vast bejeweled net. At each of the infinite numbers of knots in the net is tied a jewel that itself has an infinite number of facets. A person looking at any single one of the jewels on this net would thus see reflected in its infinite facets not only everything in the cosmos, but also an infinite number of other jewels, themselves also reflecting everything in the cosmos. Thus, every jewel in this vast net is simultaneously reflecting and being reflected by an infinite number of other jewels. This metaphor of infinite, mutually reflecting jewels is employed to help convey how all things in existence are defined by their interconnection with all other things, but without losing their own independent identity in the process. The metaphor of Indra's net thus offers a profound vision of the universe in which all things are mutually interrelated to all other things in simultaneous mutual identity and mutual intercausality. So that's what we, we now can... Uh, that's the context in which we can go about... Um, making decisions as to how we will manage ourselves through the seemingly inevitable uh, arrival of the coronavirus uh, without panicking. There's no one's talking about panicking. If, if, in fact, if we are prepared as best we can, or for whatever that means to any individual, if we're, we have some preparation, then we're less likely to panic because panic helps no one. All right, uh, that's all I've got this morning, so we'll stop and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I to liberate endless blindness.
Standing vows. <laughs> 